We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, tonight, we have a very special event. It relates to the documentary, No, No, a Documentary. Our special panelist, the director, Jeffrey Radici, Radice, Radice, and the uh, doc's former agent, the preeminent sports agent, Tom Rich. Please welcome them to the clubhouse. <laughs> Jeffrey, it's, it's all yours. It's all mine. Um, I, don't, I don't have anything prepared. You know, uh, I get the same questions a lot, you know, what, what brought you to this story, and... and you know, w without going into a lot of detail, I think that Doc's biography was really what brought me into the story itself because here was a biography of an athlete written by a poet who, you know, had just retired as an academic at, for, you know, two, three decades and was editor of the Paris Review and, you know, later on became poet laureate of the United States and one of the most literate biographies you'll ever read. And... I could see that there was a friendship between Doc and, and um, Donald Hall and all of these interesting anecdotes that were mixed in. And what I found with Doc, you know, you peel back the onion and you start to investigate these tall tales from his career and there's a lot of truth to them. There's, there, and there was a lot of truth to Doc. I mean, Tom, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Well, he was, uh, what you'll see, the uh, I should back up. A lot of you have a perspective from what you've heard, what you've read about Doc. He was one of the most controversial uh, baseball players of that or any age, and deservedly so. I mean, he also was one of the brightest players uh, that I've ever known in over 40 years of doing this in baseball, hockey, and, and football. He's just a bright, he was a bright man, very intuitive. He was also very motivated by the uh, racism that was so flagrant in, in back in, in the days when I was a young lawyer back. I didn't know Doc until later that year after this no-no. And I wasn't in uh, all the years afterwards, I was never sure about what that was all about to begin with, because we didn't talk about it much, because the only discussions we had about drugs were how much I wish he didn't get involved with him, but how much I realized that this was part of the way guys dealt with the times that they were living in. The racism was terrible. And that's how I got involved. Uh, Doc asked me to represent him and speak you know, for him with the club. And not because Doc was unable to. He knew that it wasn't going to carry any weight. And he also loved the fact that they weren't permitting it. And anytime Doc got a chance to break something <laughs> or confront something that hadn't been done before, he said, will you do it? I said, if you'll hang, I'll do it. 
And so that's how it got started. Yeah, I think that that's, that's an important note that I don't necessarily cover in the film as well as I would like, but that Doc and Tom got together in, in 1970, 1971. The ball players had to go into the general manager's office every year at the end of the season and renegotiate their contract. And it was mano a mano. There were no long-term contracts, and there were guys, no negotiations. Yeah, and, and and it was an unlevel playing field to say the least. It's in the general manager's office, and the the, the players are at a distinct disadvantage. And and Doc and Tom came up with this scheme where uh, Doc was like, I, "I'd like to have a lawyer represent me in these negotiations," and and uh, it was somewhat problematic for the team, but I think it was trailblazing and. and uh, the, the aspect of Doc as this labor rights leader within professional baseball, I think, is very understated and, and underappreciated. Well, he was a warrior uh, to, to begin with. I mean, the, the racism was so terrible. I mean, even when I finally got an appointment to go in there, I get there. I'm in a three-piece suit and have my briefcase. And Joel Brown is the general manager, one of the brightest of all time in the Hall of Fame, the son of Joey Brown, by the way. He was as sharp as it gets. He was a very large man, like 6'3", 220. I weighed 150 pounds, and I was <laughs> about 5, you know, 9, 10, whatever the hell it was. didn't matter. And so I go there when the appointment was set. And I walk, the secretary shows me in, and uh, I sit down. He walks in, and, and he's standing up to all of his height, you know, and he proclaims, and I picked the word carefully, proclaims that I changed my mind. I don't want to do this. So I took off my jacket, slowly. I took off my vest, slowly. And I said, I'm not leaving. And he looked at me, you know, in an intimidating, dead-eyed way. And I looked back at him. And I wasn't going to leave. They would have had to bring friends. And this is not the first rodeo that I ever had. He sat down. This is a very... You know, bright guy. And so we started to talk grudgingly. And we ended up talking for about 45 minutes and at least had a philosophical, you know, discussion, civilized. Put my jack, my vest and jacket back on, shook his hand, and we made a date to meet again. A couple of months later, after several meetings, we did, in fact, settle a deal that was much more equitable because the guys had no rights. They were owned in perpetuity. You know, like your house, be simple. You own it, you own it. They couldn't go anywhere. They could cry and whine and get suspended or do something temperamental and get suspended or even better, thrown out of the game. So anyway, that's a little history to how the process began at Pittsburgh and then lots of guys wanted to be represented. Still didn't have any rights. It was no fun, but... It beat the hell out of nothing. He got a lot more percentage for You know, they just, they told you, this is what you're getting, and that's what you're getting. And I 
that wasn't right. He was, this guy had, he had a set of, you know, you saw major leagues, you know, this guy, Doc had, he was a real man and a half. Crazy dude, but boy, he had a lot of quality and character to him. It was a great friend. And so one of the things that I try to do in the film is set, put it in the social milieu of when, you know, what was going on. Because I don't think that uh, certainly young people understand how different society and, and sports are today than they were. You know, baseball, I remember, I was born in 1970. I remember in the 70s, you had what, like two games a week. I mean, on WPIX or WOR, you had more. But if you lived in, in middle America... You had the game of the week, and you had Monday Night Baseball. And a lot of these games weren't televised. The free agent era, I think, really changed it, shifted the game in a, in a dramatic way. I think, you know, in 1971, uh, when the Pirates fielded the first all-black starting lineup uh, in a Major League Baseball game, this was in the context a week after that game were the Attica prison riots in upstate New York, and um, I think a week before that game, uh, I always forget his name, the, the, the prisoner who wrote Soledad Brother had been killed. George, George Jackson. Yeah. Jackson George, George Jackson. Yeah, he had been killed, and, and so they were protesting in the streets of Oakland and San Francisco, and you know, it was a, it was a very turbulent environment, and I, one of the things that Tom really pointed out to me is that, that although things were more equitable between the black and the white ball players that, you know, in the 1970s, even after the Pirates won the 71 World Series, when they went down to Florida for spring training, the black ball players could not just rent any house that they wanted to. Like they, there was a lot of overt racism that was occurring even as recently as then. I mean, it still goes on. Do you want to talk well, more about that? They won the World Series in 71. Uh, there was the, quote, Clemente World Series, where he went from being viewed as a great player to not to be duplicated uh, in the eyes of the national audience, you know, outside of Pittsburgh. Anyway, they won the World Series. Now, Bradenton, Florida is a very small place, and the, the brothers had, and the uh, Latin players had to stay in the inside a very narrow area and the other players and the rest of us you know rented places on the beach which was lovely and where they stayed a lot of it was hard hard packed dirt instead of rugs and uh, so the next year one year removed from the World Series I mean a guy like Sanguian who was one of the most popular and best players on the team was married to a white woman had a baby and the three of them had to live in a small room in the Holiday Inn across the bridge in the next town because there was no way they were going to be able to stay anywhere else so I went into the rental place that controlled all the beach places I put down uh, seven checks I said I need seven rooms she looked at me. So who, who, who are these four? I said some players on the pirate teams, friends of mine. She said, oh no no, we can't do that. I, I said, oh yeah, you can. 
She said, no, 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 no. So I said, lady, call Pittsburgh. Here's my name. I'm going to go away for an hour. I'll be back. If we don't have the rooms, I'm going to have the FBI so far up your ass you won't even know what day it is. And then, and then, we're going to file a Civil Rights Act action under the 1863 law, and you, I'm going to make sure, end up behind bars. And I looked at her, and by the way, I didn't raise my voice at that time. And I went out and came back in an hour. We had the seven keys, and we had the places, and they never faced us again. Now, you know, having said that, oh, yeah, right, you know, you know, nice, nice go, Tom. There were a million things like that that kept happening that didn't have happy endings, you know, and you're with the guys and they weren't served you in a restaurant or this or that. Um, there were some fisticuffs. Not by the players I was with. No, it was by you, right, It Tom? was by me. <laughs> I said, you guys, they'll put you out of the game. They, they can't put me out of my game, but they can put you out of your game. And this is why other things were done that might not have made sense because of the power that they had and the way it was. You know, this game was not made at that time for guys like Richie Allen, uh, later to no be known as Dick Allen from Wampum, Pennsylvania. And he was a hard-ass, one of the great, great players of his era. But also, he carried the torch. And Doc was not a fighter. I never saw Doc put hands on anybody in anger. Uh, and because I made him promise me, because if he would have done that, he would have been gone with all the other stuff that he was doing. But anyway, the bottom line is, and what Jeff gets after in this thing, and when you see it, you will see the the threat of crazy for sure, and the, and the drugs. But Doc had a lot of respect for people he looked up to, like Donald Hall. He would never do drugs in front of a straight guy. He, he that just wasn't his game. We would drink like fish. You know, when we were down at spring training or whatever, or on the road together, because we spent a lot of time. But what I'm saying is, he knew exactly what he was doing in terms of these stands he took. And the way Jeff and his group, uh, and the research they did, this is not just a jock film. It is to die for. And it may, I've seen this thing now ten times, and I have to take myself. There are certain scenes in this, I guarantee you, you will draw wet in a couple of occasions in this film. It is deep, and it is done beautifully. There's a reason why this guy is an anthropologist by education. He dug deep into the, the you know, into all kinds of places to find out stuff that I didn't even remotely know after, in spite of all the time and all the empty bottles and, and fights that had to be defended, et cetera, et cetera. It is a magnificent piece. So I'll just, I'll say a couple more things then we can open it up. You know, about the LSD no-hitter, <laughs> uh, 
what I attempted to do and what I set out to do when I started was to investigate it. And do, you know, try to produce all of the first-hand evidence that I could to back up Doc, because he was the only one to perpetuate that story initially. Yeah, I didn't know him yet. Uh, At that time. Yeah, when he, when he threw it. And, and we and never talked about it, because so, I don't want to hear that. I mean, we, we <laughs> talked to the guy that was partying with Doc before the game, who said that they were taking LSD. He, uh, and he adds the fact that they were they were crushing up pills and snorting it. Now, I don't. I had never heard that people snorted LSD, but that's not kind of something that you make up. It's just too too random of a, of a detail. Uh, it was in, in when Donald Hall started writing Doc's biography in 1974. In the early drafts of that manuscript, the LSD was mentioned. Tom had to have that removed from the book because. It was published while Doc was on the Yankees in 1976. And, you know, Steinbrenner would have had him off of the team. I had to beg Steinbrenner for the job when they traded him in the first place. That would have not played well. <laughs> By the way, Doc and Willie Randolph traded to the Yankees along with, I believe, Ken Brett for Doc Menich. A very, very one-sided trade when you look at it in, in, in history. Uh, you know, so I I tried to present all the evidence that I could without, uh, you know, uh, coming to a conclusion. I have been, I guess, critiqued in some of the reviews that I haven't presented the other side of people who who disputed Tony Bartirome, who was the trainer, trainer uh, disputed it, said that Doc didn't do it. But you know, uh, what I found was. Typically, people who hadn't done LSD were the most incredulous about it. People who have taken LSD, by and large, do not doubt Doc's story. You know, so you draw your own conclusions from that. Tony Bartirome, I think, you know, believes what he's saying. Uh, but and then there are other media people who say that because Doc didn't seem any stranger at that game, he wasn't on LSD. But Doc was kind of wild for every game. So how would you know? Uh, well, Tony Bartirome was in San Diego with the team. Doc was, whatever they were doing for that last day and that yeah. last couple of days was in L.A. with his old homies. So <laughs> no matter who was in Tony's job, they wouldn't have known who did it. Or well, and and Doc, did do it. Doc was kind of off. He said that he would take up to 17 greenies before a game. That's five milligrams, you know, so... You know, eighty milligrams or something crazy like that, and and these guys in that era, they were trying to act. They it was in the New York Post piece where they talked to Scipio Spinks about it. They would try to out milligram each other, and that's what Doc said. And so these guys were, you know, like on opposing teams, the pitchers were talking about how many milligrams they took, and they were trying to outdo each other. And that was all over baseball, and and going back to some of your greatest teamers. You know, I mean this. This was something, there were no rules, there were no testing, there was no this, that. There were illegal, there were illegal drugs that were against the law <coughs> that guys could get in trouble by getting caught uh, taking, but they did it among them, you know, they just did whatever they felt they needed to do to get ready. One real quick note on that. One time I got Doc, uh, I used to be on him about this. Try pitching without the greens. Just one time. 
and he finally, after a couple of years, he did during spring training. And he came out of the game in the second inning. He'd given up three or four runs. <laughs> he said, I can't even find the grip on the ball. <laughs> I said, I he said that Sanguin said, Doc, you need your medicine. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I wanted to say before we open it up to questions is, you know, Doc, he, he was not a saint. You know, and there are some really dark um, parts of his life that are revealed in this film. That two, his first two wives are very gracious in sharing some of you know, these really dark episodes that happened because of his alcohol abuse and his drug addiction. And I think that, to me, what makes the story a hero's journey and what, you know, established his greatness is that he was able to turn it around. He was able to become fully realized once he kind of hit rock bottom and uh, turned his life around. He really came into his own, I think, as a human being and started to share what he had learned, and he was open and honest and emotional about his life and, and what had affected him in a way that I don't think that you see in many people, let alone many um, professional athletes. And, and that, to me, is what makes him unique, is just the, the, his honesty of, uh, you know, about talking about taking 17 greeny pills before a game and sharing all this. And he was working in the trenches in the California prison system for decades uh, for no other reason because that was where he he found that he was most needed and where he felt most fulfilled I think and um, he was doing it just to help these guys turn their lives around and to me that's the, the summation of the story and when I talked to his family before making the film uh, that's what they were concerned with was his legacy and and that the, the LSD no-hitter kind of overshadowed all of the other things that he had done in his life. Well, the redemption part, they handled beautifully, and, and, it, and it isn't even debatable when you digest the whole thing. It really comes across like a quick hands of Ali, and it's very uh, effective. When he stopped playing, when it was over, and he realized he, his arm was gone, and he was gone. You know, I mean, he no longer was majorly uh, able. Uh, he wanted to, you know, in a market reversal is in the stock market. You know, man, we've seen enough of these to get sick over. He decided that he wanted to become a rehab guy. And he didn't have any training other than telling guys, you know, because he was very stubborn so he became stubborn on the other side that doesn't work but I got him his first job on the rehab side from Steinbrenner to work with the Yankees he decided having met this guy from California at one of these uh, you know seminars or, or gatherings that he wanted to go back to school and become the real deal well he also right he what he found when he was working with the Yankees, with Steinbrenner, is that he was a glorified babysitter. He had to babysit Pasquale Perez and keep him out of trouble, which, which was you know, impossible. impossible. <laughs> yeah, I know about that one real well. The, the, uh, 
But he, the thing about Doc is that he's this guy from the California prison system offered him a job, and they set up a program for him to take guys out of the cell and put them in a dormitory. And as long as they went to class and, you know, abided by the program, they could stay in the dormitory and serve their sentence. When these guys testified at his funeral, uh, they told their story, guys that have been in gangs. It's, there's some stuff in the film, believe me, that'll draw some tears. He, these guys would come and talk about how they were married now, they had a job, they had kids, and they had, he had saved their lives. And there, were, there was a whole procession of them that came, and there wasn't a dry eye anywhere to be seen in the church. Doc did everything in the same way, all out. North Pole, South Pole, whatever. He was a hell of a dude, and I miss him, and I loved him. So uh, why don't we open up to questions? Yeah. I just, uh, I knew Donald Hall in, uh, in the 60s. Um, and he was a big guy, and he was a really competitive ball player. So the, the poets used to play the, the fiction workshops, to play the poetry workshop every Saturday at the University of Iowa. And uh, I remember him as being very competitive. Didn't put it together until until you mentioned that he was the co-writer of the uh, biography. But, uh, yeah, Don, Donald Hall. Um, That's where he met. Him. He Donald Hall speaks about how when he was a kid, he played softball against Robert Frost. And to me, that was one of those things that I was like, you know, you got pentameter. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got Robert Frost and Doc Ellis, and there's Donald Hall, a direct line between them. And I thought, to me, that gets into the literary poetic side of baseball. And I think that baseball is definitely the most poetic sport and, and poets are drawn to it and here's Donald Hall writing poetry about Doc Ellis and, and Doc Ellis was a, a poetic character so I mean I, that speaks to exactly Doc was really taken did. by Donald Hall he was he really really liked him and he got way and, and Donald got all this stuff from him Donald's a brilliant guy they, they, they always, people have asked me sometimes to write a film script with a poet in it, and they always expect some guy with a fruity shirt, you know, <laughs> and little tufts coming out there, and, and people there that were wearing engineer boots and things like that. <laughs> I also want to ask you, when did it come out about Doc Ellis and LSD? So, like I said, it was in the biography, they had it removed. It, uh, it came out publicly, you know, on a wide scale in 1984, I believe. In, uh, there was a Pittsburgh sports writer who had covered the Pirates and New Doc, who we interviewed in the film. He he published it on the front page of the, the uh, Herald Tribune in Pittsburgh. And one thing that didn't make the cut of the movie is that he heard about it from David Lander, who's better known as Squiggy on Laverne and Shirley. He's a Pirates fan. Fanatic. He, fanat yeah. Uh, ended up working as a scout, I think, maybe a bird dog scout or something for Seattle Mariners. And he claimed, and I, you know, it's believable, there were not a lot of people at that game, by the way, like 6,000, I think, was the attendance. Uh, but 
David Lander claims that he was there on his honeymoon and he watched the game. And Doc, he and Doc were talking in, in uh, the, the early '80s, and Doc were, he, was, he was asking Doc about you know like well it was kind of a wild game and Doc said to him well you should have seen it the way that I saw it <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it came out. And David Lander told Bob Smizek, Smizek who hated Doc. Yeah, Smizek went. Uh, and tracked Doc down and interviewed him, and that was how the story broke on a national level. And then it kind of got perpetuated. There were some musicians. I came to it. There was a musician, uh, Barbara Manning, who had a band called the SF Seals that did a song about Doc Ellis in the 90s. And then other musicians and comedians and uh, various people have taken to Robert Williams. Robert Williams uh, being Johnny one. Carson. Yep. It's, Sarah it's, Silverman. It's in the film. You'll see it. Uh, so it came like in the mid '80s is when it really broke, and and then even it didn't generate as much of a buzz until much more recently with this viral video animated that was on YouTube that uh, <laughs> came out in 2009. I want to say a year after Doc died, and that's when the myth kind of got legs, and I, you know it was a combination of factors, I think, but. Uh, I had been started working on the film already by that point. Yeah. I, I'm the co-author of Steve Glass's uh, autobiography, A Pirate for Life. Yeah, I just read that. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. And, and forgive my voice. I have laryngitis. But um, we talked a lot about Doc Ellis, and Steve really liked him. But he, he would say some crazy stuff, like before game one, of the 71 series, he almost didn't pitch because he was complaining that his bed in his hotel room wasn't long enough. To come that was, that, so that was the National League Conference series. You might that remember was this. True. And yeah. it was where the, the pirates were staying in, in a hotel in, in San Francisco, and the bed was too short for him. And he was right. starting the game, and Doc checked out of the hotel and went to another hotel so that he could get a good night's sleep, is all it was. And the, and the you know, some of this, and I tried, I tried to address it in the film. You know, the media would take some of what Doc did and blow it up. And sometimes Doc would play the media, and sometimes the media would just run he with never it. threatened not to pitch in, the, in that, believe me. That the, the, he was making a point again, because it was six, it was six foot long. He had a lot of players on the team that were a lot thicker than Doc. And they had no business having it, you know, a team. This, this kind of stuff went on all the time. I guarantee you, if it happened, by the way, Steve Glass, one of the nicest guys that ever breathed there. Yeah. And I know him very well. What a wonderful guy. And congratulations. He's a guy that deserves a book. He is revered in Pittsburgh. But anyway, there was never a threat by Doc Ellis to not pitch up any. <laughs> Well, what I was getting at was Doc, yeah. Doc would always say these types of things. Steve, Steve would tell me sometimes just to get a reaction. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so with the no-no, Steve said to me, there's no way that you can put your no-hitter on LSD. Now, I'm curious what he said in the documentary, and I guess I'll find out this week, but... Um, when you interviewed Steve and his teammates, can you at least tell us? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to that. Because Steve Steve has this response that was actually in your book, 
about the no-hitter, right. which is uh, it's anachronistic in the sense that he didn't find out about the LSD probably until 84. But what, he, what Steve says, which I don't believe upon further inspection, is you know, we all found out about it, being the pitchers on the team, and so we said we're going to go out and get some. <laughs> but, you know, Steve... He's a, he's a comedian of yeah, high order. Yeah. Steve, we he interviewed Steve Blass and Bruce Keeson together, and uh, Steve gave us that line, and then I read it in your book, and I've heard that he said it in the, in the booth. He's the announcer for the Pirates. He's, he's been the color guy. Yeah, and years. so he, um, he kind of uses the same stories over and over again. But he also, Steve also said that he never tried LSD, so he kind of goes into that. Whereas Bruce Keeson was sitting there very tight-lipped. <laughs> uh, well, another Steve, great guy. But uh, Steve, Steve was saying, yeah, I should have tried some in 73. <laughs> maybe. Uh, you know, for what, what his problems were, it might have helped him. Who's to say? But, uh, you know, Steve... He had a lot of really interesting things to say about Doc as a pitcher. He talked about how Doc could just, as he, in his words, he said he could just pound it in downstairs over and over again. And that Doc had great control as a pitcher. He could put the ball in, in where it needed to be to, to get the hitters out. And, um, you know, he, t- he told some funny stories about, um, about Doc being on the team. But I think, yeah, there were... There were times, and even Al Oliver, who was probably Doc's best friend uh, throughout, you know, till the end of his life, you know, Willie Stargell and Doc were really close, and Roberto Clemente and Doc were really close, but, you know, those guys died somewhat untimely deaths, whereas Al Oliver was there delivering the eulogy for Doc, and he even said that there were times where Doc, you know, could cross the line and make things worse you know, and, and cause problems for the team with the controversy. But he also said, and, and I think that Blast would have said the same thing, is that Doc loosened things up. He was keeping things loose, and keeping things loose helped those teams perform better because they didn't focus so much on what was going on on the field. They were just having a good time, enjoying each other's company. Well, that clubhouse, as I'm sure you know, there was nothing wow. out of bounds. I mean, it was most politically incorrect. Just, it was like a frat house, but work, you know. Yeah. Uh, with what Dave, Justy, and Clemente would do all the time. Uh, just calling each other the worst racial names back and forth. But they loved each other. It was just a very different time. You know, like they, they, were, they were very tight. Um, and it was a different time. I mean, it was like a Dean Martin roast. They ran their clubhouse managers you had to go let them play and, and uh, guys like Glass, by the way uh, the Stargell bond with Doc was something from another world uh, although he was close with you know, Scoop Oliver did his, by the way, it was a marvelous uh, you know a mar- marvelous speech you made there. We were all crying like a bunch of running pigs. And, and uh, Steve Blass is probably the funniest guy on the team. And 50 years later, that hasn't changed. He's the funniest guy in the room. The rest of us that have big mouths, you know, when we're together socially. You just let Steve go and dominate the... He's... he's 
he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And Keeson, these guys had, with all the racism as, as an underpinning of all of this, and it was terrible in terms of the country. The country was falling apart. You know, it, it, it's like our country now is in trouble more from what's going on around the world and, a, you know, a failure, a general failure of governance regardless of the particular people. I'm not going there. I'm talking about all the functions of the government. But whatever the point is, they had their own form of government. And they played the kangaroo court. They had their own world. It wasn't the manager. It wasn't the general manager. It wasn't the racism. These guys really liked each other. And it showed. Yes, Steve. But when Khomeini died, that horribly tragic, you know, I remember that as vividly as JFK, which fortunately for you, most of you, not all of you, weren't here for. Uh, it was stunning. And guys like Doc, did get worse. Everything got worse. Blast. Uh, he may have a different opinion about that, um, and I, I have so much respect for him. I wouldn't debate the subject. And Sangian, who was so gutted by it, he insisted here was an all-star catcher, three hundred plus hitting catcher. And he insisted, and they and they let it fly, that he played right field in honor of Clemente. And, you know, I'm around all the time, you know, and I was a huge Pirate fan, going back to my little boyhood, or whatever it was. <laughs> and and the thing is that, that uh, he couldn't play there. <laughs> and, and this was a guy who was a critical piece on the team, and to say that Blast was a critical, well, that's an understatement. Second in the Cy Young two years before, World Series MVP, guts of a burglar, et cetera, et cetera. You had all these pieces not up to snuff, and the absence of Roberto Clemente. Well, Steve will tell you that, and um, I asked him this question, 15 different ways. Steve will tell tell you that for as much as he admired Roberto Clemente, and he really admired him, in fact, the first five years he was his teammate, they, he couldn't have the courage to speak to him. He, was he admired him so much. But those last five years or so, they became so tight that it, it was like Justine and Clemente. In 19... Here's... here's Clemente was mistreated by the media in Pittsburgh. You know, you guys, some of you who, who were around back back then, know that there was this whole thing that went on when he'd get in the batter's box with his neck. And he would do all this stuff, and they thought this is some Puerto Rican dance. He had really bad problems in his neck that turned out to be quite considerable in, in terms of you know, spinal hickeys only up high. And they treated him like this was just a, you know, ethnic thing and all of this business. Clemente became after 1971 not just a local icon and this great institutional player, 
after 71, his World Series, where he dominated in every way, he then became, for the first time, viewed in the air in Mays, Frank Robinson uh, group. And so the respect and affection uh, that came from all over the place also increased from the players accordingly. And so when he died, I mean, Doc called me up. Six o'clock in the morning in the East, and I'm up in Apollo and Farm, and we're still drinking with a, my, my, uh, my wife's parents and relatives and all this. We're still drinking moonshine. Went in Rome, okay? So, blah, blah. I pick up the phone, because I'm the one closest to the phone. And send me money, Clemente's dead. It was Doc. He didn't say anything. Send me money, Clemente's dead. I got to get to Puerto Rico. And the way he said it, this is no April. You know, Doc didn't play that kind of April. I dropped to my knees in one fell swoop, and he was off the phone. And we were making money order arrangements because back then that wasn't as easy. But the, it, the whole thing, Clemente's impact and the loss of Clemente among the pirates was like uh, those the rest of us felt when Kennedy was assassinated and under very strange circumstances. Now, let me, let me tell a, a story that Steve Blast told me that speaks to who Doc was uh, that's not in the film. Um, Bob Moose, who was a starting pitcher for the Pirates. You know, he was a battery mate of Doc and Steve and Bruce Keeson. He died in 76 in a car accident. Yeah. And, the, and okay. the prevailing feeling was that it was a one car accident. So he, he died in, a, in an He gave up the run. Yeah. He threw the wild pitch against the Reds. So he, he died in untimely death and they said that Doc could not was not there for the funeral. The way that I understood it was it happened in 76 when Doc was with the Yankees and they were in the playoffs. But the way that Steve Bass told the story is that Doc couldn't get there on time for the funeral, so he rented a helicopter. And they looked up, and there's Doc going over the ceremony with a helicopter just to show his respect. And that had you know a profound impact on the other guys that were on the team to understand what kind of a teammate that Doc was. Just getting back to what you were saying about Blast being an all-star, uh, number two in the Cy Young, um, the season right after Clemente's death was 73. Yeah. And that's when Steve Blast went from a, a nine-and-a-half-year, and what he became, an all-star pitcher, to completely losing. And not being able I was in spring stress. training after, after uh, this, as I was always. The guys loved him so much, and, and, and the fans did too. I mean, they were actually in there, in the cage, even though he was having these problems. You know, it was like a shooting gallery. And maybe they would not relinquish their place, even though they knew that sometimes they were going to get hit in BP. They would wear their helmets which they don't usually do. They, they, it was heartbreaking. He was one of the most popular players I've ever observed in my career. 
and deservedly. And he still carries that popularity everywhere. Let's take some more questions. Um, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, until recently, my, my company actually managed the Clemente estate. Tom, I know that you and I have a lot of people in common. The, I'm sorry, the. We've managed the Clemente. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the Clemente family has told me many times, as I'm sure that you've had that discussion with them about what a profound impact oh. that Roberto had on. Well, I know Manny was, he and Manny were like brothers, but also, of course, um, that Doc Ellis was affected as anyone was after Roberto's death. Well, I know, I, I was on the Clemente board after. I know that Chuck and, and all those. Chuck, yeah, Chuck, but the. the you know, there have been some devastating tragedies of, of all players along the way. Thurman Munson, it was awful with the Yankees, awful. But Clemente was a, had, especially since the, the World Series in question, it was more than people could handle. You know, I mean, we, we walked funny and sideways through the next season. It, it just wasn't real. And they didn't start to recover as a team until later in the decade. And then in 79, they won again. Then you had the Parker and Stargell and Candelaria. And guys. We are family. And they, but boy, how they loved Clemente. And, but the, Doc was a guy whose emotion ran very high. He was willing to fight the fight that he fought throughout regardless of which side he was on. And what Vera said is that Doc came back year after year yes, to, the, to the golf tournaments and yes. he spent a lot of time with the family after the death and, and participated. <coughs> well, she, Vera, Vera, even in the film, she's interviewed. Yeah, we interviewed her. And we he captured, boy did he capture this. She said what you just said in the only the way that the widow, the affected widow, could express it with complete composure, but the where it was coming from was deep, like Clemente's arm, deep. Another person that we interviewed is Les Banos, who, for the photographer, team photographer, he was one of Roberto's best friends, uh, might have been on that airplane, uh, but for the uh, Steelers having to run into the uh, Super Bowl that year. But Les Banos, an, ama an amazing man who uh, grew up in Hungary during World War II and was working as basically a spy for the Allies, helping get... Maybe he knew Mo Berg. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> he was helping get... Um, I think uh, downed airmen out of out of Hungary and, and doing other things. And, and came came to Pittsburgh after World War II. Went to school, learned photography, worked uh, on the LBJ campaign, and then got hooked up with the Pirates and became the team photographer. He shot. There's a little bit of footage of the no of Doc's no hitter. This was shot by Les Banos. He. The team. I can give you a little bit of background on that, you know, because there's a petition and all this. Major League Baseball, I do not believe, is hiding any footage of that game. The game was not televised. 
There's not even any radio. It was on the radio, but there's nothing remaining. Hardly any coverage. The, the radio stations would spool up these big rolls of tape, and then when they ran out of space, they would tape over them. And there was, in that era, there was a lot less of an understanding of the perpetuity of some of this material, and so it wasn't safe. But uh, what Les said is that the the local press guys from the San Diego papers would show up at the game for a few innings and then leave. This, this was the second year of the Padres, so they were terrible. They were they were the doormat. And so these guys would show up to do their job for a couple of innings, and then they would go to the bar or something. And so Les would take the photos, and if there were good ones. And so um, I believe he said that it was either the general manager or somebody said, Les, you know, Doc's throwing a no-hitter, maybe we should get some film. He went up into the press box with a, 16, a black and white 16-millimeter camera and shot what footage there is that exists of that game. And, and otherwise, there would be nothing. So, you know, there's there are a lot of interesting side stories. Let me get the film. Did he claim to pitch any other games? Under the influence, was this the only one? Doc, no, he did, he did not. I, he said he said a couple of things about LSD. He said that his teammates had no idea what it was. They thought it was something that the hippies did. You know, Doc was a big fan of Jimi Hendrix, and I think that that may have been what inspired him. Uh, he came from that vein. He said one of the interviews that I mind quite um, a lot of Peter Golenbach, who is you know a sports author of some renown, had done an interview with Doc for this book called The Forever Boys about the short-lived senior professional baseball league in 1999 or something, or 1989. And he had a long interview on tape that he shared with me, and Doc talked about all kinds of stuff. He said that he never pitched another game under LSD, but there was one other guy on the Pirates that he would take LSD with I was never able to figure out who that was. It, it, that will go un, unknown, I think. Yeah. Would you say that, I'm, I'm trying to, I guess I'm not going to see the film, but Doc Ellis, did he have a bullseye on his back? I'm thinking at this time, the athletes, African-American athletes that have a bullseye on their back would be clearly Dick Allen, Philadelphia did to him, uh, Muhammad Ali, or Cassius Clay. Was he high enough in the media matrix to draw on such a line? Well, first of all, he captures this. You know, he's there's a, you know, a scene where you see the letter that says you're such and such a mass, you know, going to shoot you right during the game. You see your head over the railing. He has Doc telling the story on camera that uh, I sat there the whole game with my head up here like this, you know. And uh, there was definitely, I can tell you this, not being in any way melodramatic because the kinds of things that happened back then you had to take into account that this was always a possibility, especially with somebody who was willing to be flagrant and defiant. And God knows he was all of that when it came to threats and all of that. 
there were lots of times uh, over certain incidents, certain things that needed to be kept quiet that would have, I've had to have uh, security details for a lot of people. Uh, let's put it this way, several people along the way of my years because there's always that risk, you know, of not of somebody shooting somebody, whether it could have been a guy-girl thing, it could have been this, or it could be one of these guys that dropped the case on the doors, you know, in the earlier years. I was much more concerned about it then, you know, when there was still, uh, you know, honest-to-God riots and prison riots. Because there are a lot of people that think that way. Well, there was the incident in Cincinnati where Doc got maced by a guard at the stadium. That was a happening. Uh, and that was somebody that, you know, had a big one. Cincinnati had a, you know, at that time, they had a lot of trade on the border there over the bridge. And there's a lot of racism there. Frank Robinson went through terrible uh, racial inequality years earlier when he came up in the 60s and uh, talks about it frequently over the years but yeah they're, they're the, they had won the World Series Pirates 1972 it became an incident you go to the ballpark at what three in the afternoon for a night game you go in and yeah you have an ID card that comes from the league there's some Pirates all going in you know with their World Series rings and all that this guy, this young guy, you know, who was a rent-a-cop, <laughs> uh, literally in a T-shirt, you know, says, well, where's your card? <laughs> give me your card. I'm Doc Ellis, you know. <laughs> I'm going to work, man. <laughs> right in the eyes. Oh. Maced him. And they arrested him, Doc. Then one thing about Doc is he never, in all those years of his career, not off season, on season, and he ever struck anybody in anger or at, at any time. Now there are some scenes involving, you know, things that happen between men, men and women. Sometimes that are unfortunate. You know that that's another story. He didn't have any kind of confrontation with a guy. The guy maced him right in the eyes, which you all know is serious or ha could have serious consequences, especially if you happen to be a baseball player. Uh, if they arrested him, and long story short, it cost the guy his job, and if I would have had my way, he would have served time. But uh, if that kind of ugliness did happen, and it always brings to mind that there's a certain capacity of it. But he was not afraid of this kind of stuff. I was more afraid than he was. But, you know, that's because there's so much racial hatred in that era. Uh, and unfortunately, as we all know, it is what it is until uh, the end of time to some extent. That's just the way human beings are constructed. Of course, overseas, it's pathetic. <laughs> We're going to have to just end the uh, podcast part of it due to co time constraints, but we can continue with a couple okay. other questions okay. if that's okay. So, farewell. Thank you for joining us. Somebody back there had. had